Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddy Dobbs. So sorry, last week we just ended up traveling almost non-stop. It was a mixture of a little bit of jet lag from the Dubai to Singapore flight and then just having four days in Singapore, only getting a bit of time to soak it in before heading off to Bali. So this is the first podcast episode from Bali. We arrived yesterday lunchtime. Before I get to it, because I've got two weeks worth of brilliant comments, messages, people writing in, so I'll squeeze all of those two weeks into this one. But I just wanted to give an overview on Singapore because from any point of view, it's a fascinating place. But if you look at it from a point of view of being a driver or a rider, I won't go into too much detail because I'll cover a bit or have covered some of it in the YouTube videos, but it's, it's a fascinating place. I almost started off the four days we were there, riding around on a little one, two, five, almost being angry at the amount of rules just everywhere. You just cannot chill on a bike. You're always worried where you're parking it or if you're doing something wrong that may get you fined. You've got constant reminders of being fined in Singapore. But at the end of the four days, I ended up feeling quite positive towards it. And that was a shock for me, being, of course, uh, both a bike and car fan. I ended up having fairly positive feelings towards Singapore in general, and also the way they run the country. Yes, there are loads of rules, but when you're living in such a tiny country with a huge population, those rules, I can see that they're, they're there to help everyone, and they genuinely are there to help everyone. And someone said something really interesting to me. They said, Freddie, it looks like Singapore could be a vision of the future. And if it is, that scares me. And, and I do get that argument as well. If you're an enthusiast for, for riding or driving, and Singapore is the vision for the future, where you use public transport and you can walk along beautifully maintained walkways, everything's lovely and safe. But the feeling of freedom is, is something that Singapore doesn't specifically have. So from that point of view, yes, it is lacking. You would have to go into Malaysia for something like that, if you can even afford to buy a vehicle with the taxes. But now Monica and I are here in Bali, and it is a polar opposite. Total freedom to do anything, to park anywhere. I mean, there may be laws to wear helmets in Bali, but it seems very much like you can pick which laws you take. I'm fairly sure I've seen just in the past day, a 10 year old riding a moped, four people on mopeds, a four year old fast asleep on a moped, weaving through a dual carriageway traffic. You'll see absolutely everything here. So it's a polar opposite. It's just so fun though. We've got a Honda Scoopy. I'll, I'll, there's no point in me talking any more about it now because it will be in YouTube, but it's been a fantastic first half day in Bali. Okay, let's get to it. And I'll start off with Cal. And apologies, apologies to anyone who, it's been about two weeks since I started or since I've replied to your comments, but today will be the day I catch up. I've got a few really good photos that I'll be sharing on the Instagram page over the next week. So as always, if you have any questions or messages you want to send in, please do get in touch via Instagram, which is 
the Freedom Machines podcast and send me an email. All of the details will be in the written description of this podcast episode. So get in touch any way you can. Send me any pictures you've got and I'll do my best to share those on Instagram and Facebook. And this is from Cal. So Freddie, last week I finally got some decent weather to take my bike out for the longest ride since I bought it in September. I planned an early 200 mile trip on my 125cc Bullet Hunt S to go to this awesome little lighthouse on the Mull of Galloway, Scotland. Going different routes there and back. I've got to say this is, well, brilliant and brave as well. Heading out in Scotland in, well, what did it be, in two weeks ago, in February. Fantastic. So planned a 200-mile ride out to an awesome lighthouse. When I made up the route, I had no clue the beauty of the route, the route and the roads I was going to discover. On the way there, I ended up riding through a heavily wooden glen with lots of forests, a dusty gravel track, which opened up to some big lochs, and epic views. This was, uh, this part was completely unexpected. Then a quick sandwich at the end and a return leg up the coastal roads, which I know well. As these roads were so quiet and had plenty of twists and turns, it gave me the confidence and safety to really learn my bike and handling in the corners as a new rider. I set out with not much more than my phone, wallet, battery pack, and a sandwich, and had one hell of a trip although my backside feels a little worse for wear after it. This is the Freedom Machine experience I've been craving. Here are a few photos, and I'll make sure I share these photos. Here are a few photos of the trip. Cal, oh, Cal, this is what it's all about. Yes, the big international trips are brilliant, but there's adventure at home, wherever you live as well, and Scotland. I've put Scotland on my list as a place I must visit. I'm sure I'm going to do it with the Highland Scramble if I have time. This is a must visit because the scenery is spectacular. And there's also something magic about heading out on a road trip with the minimal possible kit. Yes, you can get panniered up and that's great, but the more stuff you take, and I've learned this, the more stuff you take, the more hassle. If you can just pack the bare minimum, I mean, even if you can just pack with one pannier, it makes everything so much easier. And if you pack the bare minimum, you use less. You find a way to adapt with packing less. I must try that for my next trip, packing light. Cal, thank you. I move on. Freddie, it's, this is, oh, and this is talking about illegal number plates. Freddie, it's an invitation to be pulled over. Illegal in itself, it also raises the question in the police officer's mind as to what other law the rider has chosen to ignore. Exhaust, uh, non-approved helmet, no insurance. Um, if you've got the wrong insurance, whether it's commuting, business or leisure policy, etc., etc. Yeah, very good points. Very good points. On to, oh, this leads on very nicely. This is from a UK police officer. Freddie, I'll touch briefly on one of the big issues regarding the criminal use of motorbikes and the police. And that, and that is that it should, uh, that should police officers interrupt an ongoing crime where the suspects are using a motorbike as transport, 
Once the suspect or suspects make off from the scene, police will be extremely unlikely to be able to pursue, as officers will invariably be told not to pursue based on heightened risk to the safety of all road users, including the suspect or suspects, as well as pedestrians. As such, unless there happens to be other specialist police resources, such as a helicopter or a dog unit nearby, and not otherwise engaged in something or higher priority, the suspects will likely be able to make good their escape. This proves extremely frustrating to both the police officers and the victim or would-be victim of crime. However, this has to be balanced with the safety of others if such a pursuit of the suspect or suspects resulted in a collision. UK police officer, thank you. Fascinating insight. Uh, I remember this from my time in Belvedere, South East London. It was a famous area for just, it was ridiculous. And, and this echoes what the UK policeman says, or police officer. We would so often see, and, and this is a guess, 16-year-olds in hoodies, purposefully not wearing helmets, because at the time the law was, if you're not wearing a helmet, police aren't legally allowed to chase you. So you'd see, a, in theory, a policeman just having to, because it's the law, having to watch a 16-year-old riding off on a stolen moped through some of the estates in a hoodie, no helmet, because they knew full well if they weren't wearing a helmet, they could just ride off and no one would chase them. And I remember it was almost a feeling of lawlessness where you just have gangs of youths riding around on mopeds you know were stolen with no helmets on, just ripping along up and down the streets. I should say, I think, that did start to happen less by the end after the laws were changed, but certainly up until about three years ago, it was a free-fall with, with motorbike theft. And I know a lot of people often message in, not just for me, other YouTube, British YouTube channels as well. Bike crime in the UK is completely off the scale. It's, it's just ridiculous. If you leave your bike unlocked in a lot of areas of the UK, your bike is gone. Certainly within a day, it's going to be pinched. Thank you for that insight. Moving on to JB in Scotland. Freddie, do you like trying out different engine layouts? Um, and which have you yet to try out? And which are your favourites? I think a high-revving V-twin is still hard to beat, whilst a boxer has lots of characters, yet something very special in a classic inline four when you wind it past 8,000 revs. Yeah, JB... There's always been something for me. I don't know if it's that Harley thing, but there's always been something for me with the, the V-Twins. I love the character. For me, there's nothing more characterful than a V-Twin engine. Funnily enough, the BMW Boxer engines, they don't actually do much for me. I used to have a twin, uh, so I used to have a triple, triple engine, three-cylinder engine in my Triumph Speed triple. I quite like that, but I could probably take it or leave it, and I wouldn't necessarily pick a triple over an inline four. And now I'm on to a twin, a flat twin, a parallel twin. It's a perfectly nice engine, but if I had to pick one, it would be a V-twin without question because the character it gives. And I don't think that's specifically a highly related thing. I just think I like the V-twin if I had to pick anything. V-twin, JB, gets my vote. I move on to Stephen. 
Freddie, I'd like to chat. I, I do like this discussion. This is fascinating because Nick Moto UK wrote in about this and this always generates a lot of chat. Costs of maintaining bikes and in general, new bike costs. So listen to this. Freddie, I'd like to chat about service costs for motorbikes. On a recent podcast, Nick talked about a £250 bill for first service on a Bonneville. This is insane, but completely understandable. If you're buying a new bike, you need to accept that this is part of the cost if you wish to keep the warranty intact. Dealers have very low margins and all of their costs are going through the roof. However, I've got another way. And all you need to do is adopt an attitude from a bygone age. As an example, I'd like to share a couple of memories from my ancient history. In around 1978, I was 14 years old. My dad was a self-employed builder with a Datsun, <laughs> I love this, I know these, with a Datsun 120Y van. I'm sure I saw some of those in Tenerife with Monica. Money was tight in Belfast back then. So when the gearbox quit, my dad got a replacement from a scrapyard. We jacked the Datsun up on some bricks and set to work. Neither of us were mechanics, but back then, everyone seemed to have a rudimental understanding of basic mechanics. My next memory was a few years later. I bought a very tired Honda CB404. I mean, they're newer now, I'm just interjecting here. Honda CB400s are seriously popular in Singapore. They were probably the single most popular bike. I carry on. It smoked, like a, <laughs> it smoked like a docker and had less grunt than a pensioner on a Zimmer frame. I got it home, dropped the engine out, and when my mum wasn't looking, took it up to my bedroom and stripped it down. I, I've got some memories like this. I replaced, I bet she'd had a heart attack if she saw that. I replaced and reseated a bent valve, changed the piston rings and cam chain tensioner, I mean, this is incredible that you did this all yourself. Put it all back together and rode it for two glorious years. Again, I must stress, I'm not a mechanic, far from it. As I've gotten older, I tend to just pay to have my bikes and cars worked on, but why? Firstly, there's an enormous joy and satisfaction in doing your own repairs and servicing. And secondly, although bikes have become more complicated, we now have YouTube to guide us through the tricky bits. And thirdly and finally, we learn new skills and save money. You know, Stephen, you're right. Uh, I've got to just say I remember doing stuff like that. I'm not mechanically minded enough to take out an engine, but I remember once for my car, I bought this ludicrous big subwoofer. I bought off an incredibly dodgy person on the street. Huge sound system for my old Nissan Sunny, which, funnily enough, I think probably was like the, uh, the, predis uh, the successor to the Datsun 120 bought this ludicrous amp and subwoofer, put it on my parents' antique dining room table and I didn't realise there were exposed screws the entire way along the sub. And I was busy there working on the sub, making it look nice, and I didn't realise I scratched the entire antique table of my parents. And it was like that for the entire remaining three years that I lived at home, just as a reminder of what I'd done to their antique table. But this is a good point. Working on bikes yourself. The great thing about bikes, yes, they're more complicated than they used to be maybe, but 
they're still fairly simple. And if you get a naked bike stripped back with not many electronics, they're still incredibly easy to work on. And I say that because just like you, Stephen, I, or at least you used to, I, I work on my bikes and I'm incredibly mechanically unminded. I'm not good mechanically, but I have only ever taken the Bonneville to a mechanic once to get some work done and the mechanic couldn't fix the problem. So that, that problem was never fixed. The reality is if we take away that one fairly unsuccessful trip to the mechanic, I've done all the work on the Bonneville, every single thing myself. That, and that's saying something, how easy some bikes are to work on because I'm not remotely minded mechanically. Uh, and the satisfaction, it is a brilliant thing. You also save huge amounts of money because you're right, Stephen, prices are going through the roof. And to be fair to the, to be fair to the dealers, their overheads are probably eye-wateringly high. The cost of energy, the electricity to run the place, and of course salaries are having to go up all the time because the cost of living is going up all the time. So everything is going up, everything. So I do understand why they have to go up, but it really does lead us to working on bikes ourselves. It's, it's a great way to do things. I would never work on a car. I'm just too scared, but a bike, no issue at all. Thank you, Stephen. Moving on to Andy, Freddie. I had a thought about something I heard on a few podcasts. I know everyone li likes, or I know everyone loves, New Bike Day. But that leads to the finance controversy. I think we often forget about modifications. Swap the mirrors, put on a cowl, get the tank professionally painted. I love watching you swap parts of the Bonneville. The Chrome OEM are beautiful, by the way, but there are lovely options that make it feel like a new bike. I've had a blast customizing my Kawasaki Z650RS. Andy, it's, it's true. It's not only a good way to, to adapt your bike, but in general, it, everyone wins. Your bank balance wins. You could say the environment wins as well because we're not constantly chopping and changing new bikes. You're adapting something you already have to fit your new purpose. The Bonneville, for example, with a few adaptions, you put on a, a rear luggage rack, you get some hard panniers, and you've got a very, very competent tourer. And then you remove the rack, you remove the panniers, you put on a flat bench seat, and you've got a, a city weapon. You've even got a fairly decent off-roader if you put some off-road tires on. Bikes are really incredibly easy to adapt unless you've got something that's fairly unadaptable. I mean, you're not going to be taking most Harley Davidsons off-road, but again, Harleys, you can strip them back, you can modify them so much. It's an endless list of stuff and it can save you thousands of pounds and also mean that you don't have to go through the hassle and cost of potentially selling a bike and buying a new one. I often, I guess we all think, I was about to say I often may seem a bit anti-bike modification, but but actually, if I look at it, I'm not anti-bike modification. It's just we've all got our specific areas of bike modification that we like. For example, there are still a huge amount of modifications on the Bonneville. I've got the rear rack. It's a modification. I've got the, the custom panniers from Hepcombecker. So while I have put the lights back to standard, if I hadn't 
done a few of my modifications, the Bonneville would not be the right tool for the job for me. I may have considered selling it because it has to be comfortable for two people. I have to have lockable panniers because I very often use the bike for going from place to place and just leaving it somewhere with a lot of kit in it. And I need to be able to lock that kit. And if I wouldn't have been able to buy aftermarket lockable panniers, I would have had to sell it and buy a bike which is more conducive to having lockable panniers. Thank you, Andy. On to Brian, Brian O'Rourke from, uh, from Oregon, the Pacific Northwest. Freddie, I recently went down a rabbit hole on the internet, researching all of the latest technology and gadgets available for motorcycles, and it is incredible. There are so many cool features that you can now add to your bike that it's almost overwhelming. Anything from small cameras to the front and back of your bike that record and take pictures, blind spot, this is incredible, blind spot detection sensors and you can, uh, that you can add to your mirrors to light up when objects are in your blind spots. The list goes on and on. Anyway, this got me thinking. It would be a good topic to bring up on the podcast. What type of technology or accessory that is or is uh, that isn't out yet, would you like to see for bikers? It could be something specific to safety reasons or just something to enhance the overall riding experience. If that stumps you, maybe follow-up, maybe a follow-up question would be what technology out now needs to be improved or enhanced? I personally just need my bike and a GoPro, but the amount of amazing technology I see online or on YouTube, the harder it becomes not to want it. I'd love to know about other listeners and what they think of, uh, of these aftermarket accessories, these gadgets for bikes. What would they pick? All the best from Oregon. Yes, Brian, I do. There's something that often shocks me with new bikes or nearly new bikes. For me, a USB charger must be a standard on all bikes. I'm always incredibly uh, disappointed when a USB charger isn't standard, USB output. And why, why are some USB outputs only under the seat where you would have to put the key in, twist it, open up the seat, and if you've got some luggage attached to the back of the seat, or attached to the back of the, the seat, you have to unstrap all of that luggage. It has to be, for me, on the handlebar, so you can easily attach your phone to the handlebar and plug it in. There needs to be a USB output, stealthily hidden, for me, as, as a standard basic on every motorbike. Apart from that, I know my Bonneville doesn't have it, but I do like ABS on bikes. That is probably probably the one and only thing for me. I do like ABS on bikes as well as the USB output. And I am, I admit, I am a fan of heated grips. They, they do make a big difference when you're riding in cold weather. So if I were to buy a new bike, I probably would spec it with heated grips. And interestingly on this, I know loads of people have Oxford heated grips, but they just, they look quite ugly with that little display that you have to push with the buttons. They look quite ugly and I know they rust because I see old ones, but Oxford have now launched a brand new 
set of heated grips and they're designed I mean they say they're designed for cruisers Harleys and things but they're for anything and they look so good that genuinely they look like heated grips that could come as standard on a bike and I'm really considering a pair of those but in general in general Brian I'm I'm not a fan of too much tech on bikes I like it to be as simple as possible because for me Tech will, will often go wrong. So I like things to be as simple as possible. And I also love it on a bike when you take off the seat and there are no, you know, there's no spaghetti junction of wires. It's just beautifully simple. Simple, less stuff to go wrong for me. But if I had to pick, they're not new ones because I rarely get on a bike and think there's something new I, I would need. But I do like, I like having the ABS. I don't need rider modes, but I like ABS. I would love a USB outlet as standard on every bike and the heated grips. They're very good as well. Moving on to John from Texas. Oh, now this is, if I remember correctly when saving this, this is about police, but police in the US. And this is going to be an interesting insight from across the pond. Hi, Freddie. I recently heard your podcast and the subject of policing came up namely a listener and fellow biking police officer commented that there wasn't time to uh, that there wasn't time to track down car and bike thieves because of the long line of violent crime gang domestic violence drug dealers to deal with such matters as a stolen uh, sorry just uh, it's slightly adapted wrongly here when I've copied and pasted this, so I'll just say that bit again. Uh, long line of violent crime, gang, domestic violence, drug dealers, to deal with such matters as a stolen vehicle. Where the dis and this is where the disconnect comes in for me. And that is that, yes, I'm sure they are busy with those things. I am not denying it. Yet, somehow they find time after wading through the city's dark underbelly of criminals and despots to ticket the public for the smallest infraction that could ever be devised. License plate size, motorcycle restriction plates, parking in the wrong place or not following one or more of the endless arbitrary safety rules decided on by the nanny state. The police say they are too busy with real crime to deal with what they consider petty crimes. But if that's the case, we should rarely, if ever, see someone ticketed for one of the petty infractions listed above. Yet the bulk of their time and manpower is spent on such trivial matters. The next time you see a policeman, simply look at what he's doing. Is he parked in front of a crack house, slamming a, cruff, a cuffed drug dealer in the hood or on the hood of a car? Or is he posted up somewhere with a radar gun or sticking tickets on windows of parked cars? What they say and what the public sees are two different things. I know the police are busy. My brother is a cop and a member of SWAT. But I think the problem is threefold. It's a problem with society. It's a problem with the government overreach and to the point of vehicle theft, it's a lack of interest and very little, if any, monetary gain on the part of the city, 
town or state. Hopefully in the future we'll find some kind of balance. Happy riding. Great to hear your insight in that. And it's, it's an ongoing argument. It's a really tough one because I do understand it. You know, as the police, they, and they, if they see something wrong, they can't necessarily turn a blind eye to a small number plate. But it seems to be, it seems to be dependent on the kind of policeman, the kind of day you're on. And that really does depend, and that's not just a specific UK thing. You know, I said before, I've ridden all around Europe on my small number plate with no issue at all. But you could very easily go out after putting a small number plate on your car and the very next day be pulled over and fined. And depending on who you get, I guess you could possibly even get points on your license, depending. I don't know. So it's a really hard one because I know if I park in the wrong place on a motorbike, I in theory do deserve a ticket or deserve to be pulled over if I'm doing something slightly wrong. Should that make me angry at the police for pulling me over when there are other far more important crimes to solve? Or should I expect the police to turn a blind eye when there's a lot of crime that's rampant? I, I do understand. If, if I get pulled over by a policeman for doing something, let's say riding 24 miles an hour in a 20 zone, I can have no arguments with that because I am breaking the law. Should I feel angry at being pulled over when I know full well, and this happened, that one of my neighbours had his motorbike stolen and he had to go and do his own detective work because the police wouldn't come and investigate and have a look at his bike, where it was parked, and they wouldn't go and follow up where he knew the bike had been stolen? Should I be angry at the fact that hadn't been done? And that they're there busy ticketing me? Probably not, because, because it's still a crime, technically, what I'm doing. And I've heard the insights from the UK police. It's a hard one to know, but it's a very, very interesting topic to bring up. Um, yeah, I find it fascinating, really fascinating. So thank you for sharing that. Really appreciate it. Thank you, John. I move on. Freddie, Graham from Scotland here. Just a comment on one of your listeners' points about high garage labour costs. Unfortunately, all garages charge way more per hour due to the costs of training, equipment and resources needed to perform all jobs and to be profitable. Manufacturers have particularly high labour rates due to their high overheads. To keep a warranty valid, you do not need to always go back to the manufacturer. Any VAT-registered garage can do the work. This may be different if you have a warranty from an independent retailer, but most plumbers, for example, charge £200 just to be called out to your house before they even lift their toilet plunger. Yeah, Graham, I know this all too well with, uh, with plumbers and builders. In fact, now I try. If I've got any issues, yes, always with a bike, but also, if I've got any issues at home, genuinely, genuinely, I mean this, because the cost of labour is so hugely high in the UK, I will always now try and do DIY work at home for this exact reason, because you're going to be paying a minimum of £200, minimum, 
to, to have an electrician or plumber being called out. So I, I really do genuinely try and do most of the work myself with YouTube, just watching a few videos. It's so great to, to just be able to type in, for example, boiler not working. And you can almost, almost certainly get someone who's been maintaining your exact boiler doing the exact same thing on YouTube. And funnily enough, I remember Graham, a mechanic I used to use, bike mechanic, he's good. He was in southeast London and he owned his own shop, his own garage, where he would service all of the motorbikes. And he had this for a couple of years. So he would have to pay the rent for this, this garage that he would rent out and pay the business rates and pay everything that goes into it. You know, you've got the council tax, just tax after tax after tax, and then you've got to pay rent. And, and when I met him, he said, I, I got rid of all of that because I was finding that I was working so hard and becoming so stressed just to cover the overheads. And I was having to do so many jobs just to cover the basic overhead. So I would have to do about 20 jobs in a month only to break even, no more than that. And it takes away hugely from the actual joy of the job. So he got rid of everything. Now he's just got a van and he will pick up your bike, service it, do any work on it, all for one cost. And that's part of the service. He'll come around with his van, pick it up, do the work in the back of his garden. I think he's built a shed where he'll work on bikes. And he said, the level of enjoyment that he has now for his job and his work is so much, so much higher because he doesn't have that overwhelming stress of constant overheads just to break even. And that's really, I think maybe the UK, well, maybe we're worse than a lot of places, but it's happening a lot everywhere. Cost of rent, cost of overheads, they can easily mount up and take away from that joy. And these big companies, these big dealers, just, I know I've said it before, it's eye-watering what their overheads must be. Thank you, Graham. On to Al from the US. Freddie, in regards to the recent talk about Americans and their riding gear, and also the Royal Enfield Continental GT650s, I was riding the other day and stopped to check my tire pressure. I wear a helmet, gloves, leather jacket, double knee Carhartt pants and moto boots. Some guys stopped to help me and use, uh, some guys stopped to help me and I used their air pump. And he told me how it's good for me to always wear my safety gear because he was on his street bike and fell not wearing any safety gear and got major road rash. I've also gotten the respectful wave or nod equally from guys all decked out in gear and also guys not wearing any gear at all. My point is, this is, uh, my point in saying this is that so far, my experience is that other riders aren't at all judgmental, even in America. As some seem to, uh, my point is that some riders aren't as judgmental, even in America, as some people seem to think. I wear what I'm comfortable with wearing. If anyone feels the need to wear more or less, that's their choice, and none of us have any right to dictate someone else's choice. To me, cool looking gear is half the fun. Al from the US.
Yeah, well said, Al. Well said. And it's just that great biker spirit, isn't it? Stopping to help other people. And whatever bike you're on, whatever gear you're wearing, a nice nod. It doesn't matter if you're on a Harley or a BMW. Nice acknowledgement as you go past. I love it. It's all part of the biker spirit. From JB. Freddie, I've got a simple question for you. If, say, oh, this leads on very nicely, actually, from JB in Scotland. Freddie, if, say, the worst happens, then do you expect the NHS, the National Health Service Ambulance, to come to you to take you to hospital? I ask because someone in the US can make no such immediate assumption. They have to purchase medical insurance and pay to play for medical care. In the UK, we rely on the NHS. No ifs, no buts, free or paid by the taxes at the point of care, in principle. But we know the NHS is in crisis, all very topical. So consider that if you are in an accident without wearing riding gear, then you'll be worse off. You may need care. That burden then passes on to the NHS, maybe A&E, accident and emergency, or maybe your GP, your general practitioner. So a personal decision to not ride in the proper gear is ultimately paid by the taxpayer. Bikers are called the organ donors for a reason by hospital staff. Just a thought, JB. Yes, JB, you're completely right. The fairest thing to do for the, the NHS, for everyone, is to be fully kitted out in all biking gear. That's by far the most sensible and far, by far the safest thing for, for me on a personal level and for the NHS. That will go a, a, at least some way to helping the NHS, which is in a crisis at the moment. If anyone who's not British doesn't know, it's in the news all the time. Our National Health Service is in a crisis. So anything that we can do to help that is fantastic. But my argument to this, JB, would be, well, if we want to really help the NHS, how far do we go? Should we, should we say that anyone over eight kilos overweight is also a burden on the NHS and they must lose the weight because they're at higher risk of heart attack or diabetes? Or should we say that no one should be smoking to protect the NHS or that no one should be going five miles an hour over the speed limit or that I should cut back on my chocolate intake by a good 50% because I could well get diabetes. There has to be some level of personal freedom, is my point. And the personal freedom, from my point of view, is just having a little bit more flexibility and freedom with the kind of biking gear that I wear in some situations because if I look at it from too intense a point of view at how I can protect the NHS then my list would go on and on I should not be eating any chocolate my alcohol consumption should probably go down hugely and possibly I shouldn't be biking at all so I like to think I'll, I'll pick and choose what I take. Is that, a, is that a good answer or is that a complete cop-out? I welcome anyone else's thoughts on that because it's a very good point. And in principle, JB, you're spot on with that. Can't argue with that at all. I'm going to do one more here from JB because I like this one as well. 
Freddie, what does the political move to electrification mean for the last of the big dinosaurs like the Rocket 3, the most polar opposite bike to a Honda Cub, 2.5 litres, 300 kilos, etc.? JB, I think the move to electrification will, will only be a positive thing for the likes of the Rocket. I think that electrification will mean that we, and I've said this before, but we will look more favourably than ever at the likes of the big rockets, the Harleys, these huge engine bikes with colossal character. It will only be a good thing. Uh, I know I said it before, but I really do feel strongly about this with electrification. Electric vehicles are going to be taxed as much as petrol and diesel vehicles eventually. So taxation is of no change, whether it's electric petrol or diesel. The government are going to need their money and they will not let electric vehicle users off one bit. And as we move over to electrification, you're not going to get, in my eyes, any retrospective increased taxes on petrol and diesel vehicles. For example, let's say in 15 years time when maybe most vehicles are electric, the government are not going to come in and say, okay, Freddie, now you've still got a petrol powered motorbike, you're going to have to pay an extra thousand pounds a year to keep that petrol motorbike on the road. No, it's not going to happen. I'm going to be allowed to ride my motorbike with the same taxes I pay now. Petrol will go up at the same rate it's been going up before, but I won't be having any extra taxes in my mind. This is what I, just personal opinion. I won't be having any extra taxes on my petrol or diesel vehicle. The only difference is they're going to stop selling them in 2035, but there won't be any extra payments that I'm going to have to make. So I don't think electrification will affect these big bikes one bit in any way, actually. And I also think that once electrification is here and once we, we've all moved over to electrification, the government will then start trying to get electric vehicles off the road because they're still vehicles and they still, they're still not great for the environment. That's the truth. So the government will then push to try and get electric vehicles off the road. I think in February or March, February or January, sorry, 2023, as an example, 60% of all electric vehicle charges in the UK, 60% were, were charged through greenhouse gases, through the exact same areas uh, as you, you have all of the, the nasty smoke. You know, I don't know what you call it, but they weren't coming from green sources in essence. So 60% of all charges for UK electric vehicles were coming from the bad stuff. None of it was coming from clean energy. None of it. Well, 60% of that wasn't coming from green energy. So that's still a huge burden. Yes, it may be better for the environment. You know, it may be better for the environment electrification, but the government will eventually have the same idea with electric vehicles as it does with petrol and diesel. That is my personal opinion, and I always welcome anyone else's thoughts on that. But all of these petrol vehicles, in my eyes, JB, the Rockets, the Harleys, everything, the Bonnevilles, whatever it is, they're all going to be there and they'll be happily whizzing around the streets for, for, 
for many, many years to come in my eyes with, without any real issue. I really do think that now. Moving on. Freddie, in your last podcast, you were talking about Harleys. I've had many Harleys over the years and always dreamed of having one when I was younger. The thing with Harleys is the sound, the way the power's delivered through the bike and the looks. I bought an old shovel head from the States and have now turned it into a chopper. I've got a small YouTube channel if you like to see things. It's called The Bike Riverside Sea Cycles, for anyone that wants to check, and I will check that out. Thank you. The Bike Riverside Sea Cycles. The reason for this message is that although a stock Harley is good, I've never had more attention for a bike than this old chopper. So maybe as you want a Harley, I would think about a custom chopper bobber as well. The feeling that you get on one, the feeling that you get riding one is something I can't put into words at this moment. However, I have my own motorcycle workshop and with a bike like this, they do need a lot, and I mean a lot of maintenance, but please consider one before you buy a new Harley as it's something very, very special. I, you know, Jamie, I've just got the best image of these. They are some of the coolest looking bikes, these choppers. Just, it's still a rare sight in the UK to see these, a chopper whizzing past. But when you see a really genuinely cool chopper whizzing along the motorway or the smaller roads, it's such a fine sight. I think there are no cooler looking genre of bike than the chopper. They're fantastic. But this is it, Jamie. I, I, I know this. It's interesting you say this because another American got in touch with me. In fact, I say another American. Uh, am I right in saying you are from America? Apologies if you're not, but an American contacted me. And he said, yeah, Freddie, if you want a Harley, this was just, I think, last week. He said, if you want a Harley, get one. But do be prepared. They are not the cheapest bikes to maintain and they do need proper maintenance. Uh, a gearbox, getting it redone, for example, can be £2,000 or dollars to get that sorted. You, you get some pretty hefty bills with Harleys, so I do need to prepare myself. But, Jamie, it's still a dream. The only thing with choppers, I should say, luggage. You know, I like doing big trips on it, and I do like the luggage point of view. Although, I can't argue, it's probably my favourite genre of bike from a coolness point of view, the chopper. Thank you, Jamie. Moving on, Freddie, can you help with the dilemma? I passed my test last year and bought a Yamaha XSR 700. This seemed like the perfect blend of looks, reliability and performance. I've really enjoyed the bike, but after watching the video with your friend, Danny, who switched from a bobber to a KTM, I'm wondering if I should go for something that's a bit more practical but less cool. The difference between myself and your friend Danny is that the XSR 700 does fit me perfectly. My dilemma is do I invest in a better setup for my own bike like Hepco and Becker panniers, quad lock, touring helmet, etc. Or do I buy an adventure bike or sports tourer which may increase my opportunity to ride more? What do you think? Thanks, Steve. Steve. This is brilliant that this is coming today on the day that we're talking about bike modifications and how you can save your money and save hassle and save the environment a bit, modify your bike a bit to suit your needs. I've got two slightly conflicting points of view with this. 
XSR is a, a fairly sporty bike in modern classic terms, in the retro scene terms. And it's probably one of those bikes that's slightly on the cusp. Yes, you can put panniers on it and you can make it more comfortable for, for example, for long distances like, like an adventure bike or a sports tour or something like this. Uh, but, but it's, it's, still, it's still a more sporty end. Of, of the retro spectrum. So I would actually be quite tempted if I were you, if I were you, Steve, I would be quite tempted to, to sell it and actually go for an adventure bike because just looking at what you're saying, this is the conflicting thing I've got here. With some bikes, some modifications work very well. And with other bikes, they're lent more to other modifications. The Bonneville, for example, it, it, in my eyes can be very well modified to suit touring and to suit comfort, and it can be stripped back quite easily. I find the XSRs are very good if you want to go for a more aggressive look, um, but how would they look if you want to turn it slightly into the more touring setup look? Just like the BMW R9T, I should say, they look very good from an aggressive point of view, but not quite as good if you want to turn them more into a, a bit of a long distance machine, a bit of a tour. So I would be quite tempted, Steve, if I were you, to actually to sell and go for a big adventure bike. Certainly talking to Danny, in fact, yes, I was going to say certainly talking to Danny, he's over the moon with his KTM, and he is. Uh, and I won't give too much away because it's still not confirmed with him, but I'll be honest, he's also potentially looking at a second bike, which is a modern classic. So I should just chuck that in there uh, just as a bit of leveling for this argument. But I still, Steve, I would probably say check out, uh, check out some of those adventure bikes, see how you feel because they are superb machines. I move on to Fabian, Freddie. One of your listeners' email on the last episode mentioned the cost of Triumph's first service at £250, and I must agree with all you said about costs being comparable to car servicing. I thought I'd share my recent experience with my Royal Enfield Interceptor. To give you some background, the bike's fairly new. I had it for one year, but covered almost 12,000 miles. Oh, good going, Fabian. That is proper car level mileage. That's a serious effort. Nicely done. I recently rang Royal Enfield about making a warranty claim following electrical shutdown of the bike. That is where I found out that what I thought to be a really narrow interval between services of 6,000 miles or six months is actually every 3,000 miles. I'm sorry, I'm just getting my head around that. On a service interval, the 3,000 uh, miles is marked as inspect. So essentially, it's a check over without any replacement of oil filters, etc. But it has to be done by the dealership. So to be covered by the warranty, I would have had to visit my dealer five times in the first 12 months and spend just over 
thousand pounds for the pleasure. So, you pretty much have to agree to a very expensive dealership subscription for three years on top of your initial cost of buying a new motorcycle or be prepared to fix your own new bike if something goes wrong. Fabian. Fabian, I think this is one of the most fascinating insights I've ever had into new bike ownership. Who has the time from buying a new bike to go five times to a dealer in the first 12, year, 12 months after doing 12,000 miles five times. That is completely ridiculous and unrealistic. There are plenty of people who could live a two-hour ride from the local dealer and then have to spend, it's a whole day. You ride there, you wait for two hours for them to do what they need to do and you ride back, that's a full day. So once every two months in essence, you have to go to the dealer sometimes just to simply inspect the bike and 3,000 mile intervals. And even if it isn't an inspection and not an oil change, it doesn't matter, you still have to take the bike there. And a thousand, a thousand pounds for the first 12,000 miles. It's gigantic money. I think, I honestly think, Fabian, I'd be inclined to just, to just do it all myself the interceptors are so simple and almost forego the warranty. I know that sounds ridiculous, but five times in a year and a thousand pounds for the pleasure, uh, that is, yeah, that's a superbly fascinating insight. Thank you so much for that. That is way too short. I didn't know that for the interceptors, 3,000 miles, way too short. And I often think with these, because I did know the Himalayan has short intervals, and I often think, it's fine, they're simple bikes, just work on the bike yourself. But I have completely missed the point that if you want to keep your warranty, you need to go and get it serviced and looked at by Royal Enfield, and that is the issue. So thank you for highlighting that. Moving on. Hi, Fred. I'd welcome your thoughts on this one. I use my bike, a Moto Guzzi adventure bike, all year round as a commuter. On my ride into Cambridge, I reckon it saves me an hour a day in travel time, plus half again in costs. However, there's a price to pay. This came to me riding back along the A14 in gale force wind, driving torrential rain, leaking kit, zero visibility, flood water on the road, overtaking HGVs and three mile tailbacks. Yeah, I think you may know where I'm going with this. To cap it all, all off, I got hit by a car the other day and the insurance company reckon the bike is beyond economical repair. So here's my question. Do you think we romanticize the image of motorcycles too much? Is the lifestyle uh, we are sold really there? Don't get me wrong, I wouldn't be without a bike and we'll go again once the insurance claim goes through. Cheers, Jim. Oh, Jim. Oh, you've got me onto one here. For me, the, the, the romantic element of biking is exactly in line and completely fits with, with what the image of biking is. For example, when I per passed my test and when I was learning, I thought biking is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And it has even more so lived up to that. And I've done everything. I've done, I think, 13,500 miles commuting on my Suzuki RF600. And I've 
used it for pleasure all around different countries. And for me, the romance of biking, the cool factor of biking, it lives up to it and even more so. And I've done those awful rides in minus two freezing cold, screaming into your helmet because you're so cold. But all I feel every time I do that, the daily commute on a bike, I think, especially when I was doing it a bit and I was in an office, I think this is my outlet. I've, I've got my own freedom. I get to do something that's as fun as riding a roller coaster to get to work. And then the whole time I'm at work, I'm looking forward to that incredible ride back. It turns a mundane journey into something amazing. Even if it's cold and wet, you get to ride your pride and joy every single day, twice a day, if you're using it commuting to work. So for me, Jim, oh, the, right, the magic, the romance, it's more life than ever. But I welcome anyone's thoughts on that. Uh, Jim, I should say, sorry about your accident as well. I really hope that you're okay and you managed to get your bike sorted. So sending all my best. Moving on to Adam. Freddie, after listening to the chap on your latest podcast episode, putting his Harley Davidson up for sale and having bought a Royal Enfield Classic 350 and giving up on the dream bike, so to speak, I thought I'd let you know about where I sat on the subject. I've been a sports bike rider for most of my riding life. However, I've always had a quest to one day own a Harley. The time came for me to replace my beloved sports bike and had my heart set on a Harley Sports to 1200 after a short ride on a friend's one. That was until I rode a Royal Enfield. I was actually looking at a Sportster they had for sale at a local dealer. However, I set my eyes on the Royal Enfield section and that was it. I rode a classic 350, which I fell in love with, but decided that as an only bike, I needed something with more power. After a few days, I settled on the Royal Enfield Continental GT650 and I'm smitten. It's the perfect blend of power, reliability, but most importantly, nostalgia. I feel happy every time I go out and spend most of my time walking backwards, looking at it parked up when I stop anywhere. My question for you is this, as I can't work it out, just how do Royal Enfields do it with their price point? Regards, Adam. Adam, you know, I still look so fondly at my time. I had, was it one day or two days? One or two days in Tenerife, a stunning black and white paint job. Royal Enfield Continental. It, it, it was just such a memorable ride. That bike is seriously special. You, you just get taken back to, in my mind, the, the 1960s ton-up boys. It, it's nostalgia is off the scale with that bike. Feel-good factor off the scale. It's a really very, very special bike. So many people I speak to, it's the Continental GT650 that gets people into biking. That's the bike that gets them into biking. How do they do it at the price point? Adam, I, I think I can confidently answer this and I welcome anyone who will say otherwise and I'll share your comments. I think I can confidently say the reason Royal Enfields are such brilliant value is that India can offer something that, apart from China, very, very few other companies can offer. They can offer 
economies of scale on a car level. A lot of the time I say, why are bikes so expensive? Why is a bike the same price as a car when you get infinitely less with a bike? With a bike, you get an engine and two wheels, yet you're paying the same as getting a little car with air conditioning, doors, seats, creature comforts, radio, physically bigger, you've got more metal on a car. Well, that's simple. That's because cars have colossal economies of scale, gigantically more than any bike manufacturer, apart from a very few, that is. And Royal Enfield is one of them. Have a look at how many Royal Enfields are sold in India, for example. We're talking car-level stuff. The Indians are bike-crazy, bike-crazy. And Royal Enfield can barely build the, the Royal Enfield lineup fast enough to supply to the Indians and to the, the Europeans, Australians, Americans, everywhere else. It's because of those colossal economies of scale, I believe, that Royal Enfield can make bikes, probably at a price point that you would hope that all bikes could be made at, but can't be a lot of the time because they just don't have those huge economies of scale to make it work. And that's why I think it is. But anyone who's got any insight on that, I'll definitely share it. But economies of scale for me, Adam. Moving on. Freddie, Greg here from Northern Ireland. I listen, I, I, listen, I listen to the podcast while I'm welding rock-crushing machines. Fantastic. In a recent podcast episode, I felt terrible about the chap whose KTM was never out of the dealership garage with problems and he was still paying for it. Which leads me on to the point about KTM bikes that you talked about that's coming with all options fitted. Has anyone thought long-term? I mean, if I buy a two-year-old KTM, and would like the quick shifter activated. I take it to a KTM dealer, hook it up to the laptop, and it turns on, uh, and turns out, oh sorry, and hook it up to the laptop, and it turns out that because it hasn't been previously used, uh, it's, uh, it is faulty or locked up. Who pays for the repair? Active suspension and the like? I've been around bikes a year or two, and if you don't use it, you'll lose it. Items not used go crusty and don't work. Is, KTM go, uh, is, is a KTM rider going to be hit with an activation fee plus a repair bill one day? Not nice. All the best, Freddie. That's a really interesting point, Greg, that no one shared before. If you do buy a KTM, as an example, and you want quick shift or something turned on, when you buy it secondhand, there's a very good chance that quick shifter has laid dormant on the bike. Could be for six to eight years or so. Could be 15 years if you buy a 15 year old bike, laid completely dormant. Uh, and of course, well, it would have to, it must be, it would have to be you, the new owner, that would pay for that quick shifter my guess is to be replaced because it's so true. If you're not using a part, Greg, that part seizes up surprisingly quickly. Whenever I'm, for example, not using my, my Bonneville or the Fiat 500, 
let's say the Bonneville for sake of argument, if I've got a press bike and I don't use the Bonneville for two weeks, I can tell when I start it up, even after just two weeks, it feels a bit more lumpy. But if I'm using the Bonneville every day, starts up immediately, completely smooth. Vehicles, and I am a huge believer of this, vehicles are much better when they're actually being used. They like to be used, the more the better. Using, using it every day. You know, the Fiat, for example. When I left it, I use a Fiat every day. It's got 203,000 miles, it never goes wrong. But when I had the Land Rover in Cornwall, it felt, not only did it feel a bit lumpy for the first 10 miles, I couldn't drive it off because the brakes had seized after just two weeks. I had to rev it, almost flatline it, and then rip off the clutch. And I heard the most painful clunk as the brakes disattached because they'd seized up. And then for the first 30 miles, I had an ABS warning light on the Fiat 500. And it took a day for that light to go out. And now everything's fine. But you're absolutely right. You know, these things do need do need using, and they will seize up pretty quickly. Moving on to David. Freddie, I had to interrupt my daily walk to write to you after hearing about the rider fined due to number plate size. How incredulous, as just a few emails before, an officer would write in to say that bike crime is at the bottom of a long list. Whilst I agree that societal issues are the driver of police time being focused elsewhere, why then is number plate crime seemingly at the top of the list? Surely these officers' time would have been better spent uh, more wisely chasing up on thefts and more serious crime. It doesn't make sense. Thank you, David. David, yeah, it's interesting. This echoes very closely with the with the American listener and his thoughts on how it is across the pond as well. And it's fascinating to see that maybe in every country we, we have these issues with, a lot of the time, crime in a lot of places feeling almost out of control. And there are, I know there are a lot of people who think that motorists are an easy target. There are, it's easy. An easy target, you, you find this motorist. I'm not saying this is what the police do, but the feeling can be that motorists could potentially be an easy target. So great to hear from you, David. Also great to hear from the police as well, you know, to get involved and share their thoughts as well. It's brilliant to hear all sides of the argument. Thank you for that, David. From Jack, I move on. Freddie, I hope you're enjoying Dubai. I did love it. Uh, I've been catching up on the podcasts in a couple uh, of weeks back. You talked about classics being locked away as investments and keeping the miles low. While this matter on more high-end classics such as Porsches or Ferraris, on more affordable classics, uh, uh, while this may be the case on Porsches or Ferraris, on more affordable classics, I don't think anyone really cares as... Uh, as more use 90% of the time means better care by the previous owner and more reliability. After all, vehicles hate sitting. It's almost like I planned this message, this, this email, to be here, Jack. But this chimes in perfectly with what I've just said. Vehicles like to be used. Spot on, spot on. For example, I've got a 1956 MGZA Magnet, which has done just over 270,000 miles. That's, 
that's to the moon. That is gigantic on a 1956 MG. Who says old British vehicles weren't well built? Well, it was my great uncle's originally and he bought it in 1960 and daily drove until his death in 2017. So at 16 years old, I inherited it. When it came to insure it, the agreed valuation was £11,000. Yet, as at the very most, these are worth about 15000 in mint low mileage condition, uh, mileage doesn't seem to have a huge factor. I must admit, I'm not too knowledgeable on the classic bike world, so would love to know your thoughts on if mileage on attainable classics uh, really matters or if it's usable condition that's more important. Many thanks, Jack. I, I'm still getting my head around that. I mean, to use it daily from 1960 to 2017 with over a quarter of a million miles on the clock. What a vehicle. That is a vehicle, well, like you've done, Jack, to never get rid of. That's a very, very special vehicle. I'm with you on motorbike mileage, car mileage. I don't care. In fact, I often try and pick out high mileage vehicles because everyone else gets freaked out about it. And I know vehicles can, in essence, pretty much go on forever. So I love high mileage vehicles. I just think that for the majority of the population, they like, they like low mileage vehicles, or at least, at least low mileage vehicles may get a couple of grand more than a high mileage equivalent, for example. Sometimes maybe even as much as five, six, seven thousand pounds more for a low mileage example. But I do agree, the most important thing <coughs> above all else is the condition of the vehicle. Has it been loved? Does it have a service history, especially if we're looking at a classic, a service history? Has it been loved? Has it been cherished? These are more important things than the mileage. Someone who's had it, ridden it, driven it 50,000 miles and not really cared for it, but it's okay, it's got low mileage. No, I would take a higher mileage one with full history, clearly showing that it's been loved. And it's got a story to tell because they're vehicles, they should be used. That's my point of view, Jack. But I do know that if you have a lower mileage run, I'm sure they'd get more money. But then you have to think, if you're just locking it away and not actually enjoying it, it's a different proposition then. You're keeping it purely as an investment and not as something to actually enjoy. Very different way of thinking. Jack, thank you. It's food for thought, that. I move on to Nick. Freddie. I wanted to share a quick story with you. I've been listening to the podcast for a while and have been thinking about the balance of finances and making the right decisions when it comes to purchasing a new bike. I've been on a bit of a hiatus for two years from riding and I'm finally getting back on the road. I went to a dealership to look at one of my dream bikes, which is a 2023 Kawasaki Z900RS Cafe in black and gold. These come up a lot, these Kawasaki's, the Z900 RS's. These are really popular bikes with, with those in the know. They may not be colossal sellers, but for the, the bikers who really know their stuff, they seem to be very popular. I continue. After running the numbers with the salesman for a five-year loan, I would be spending £240 a month plus another £65 for insurance. 
On top of other bills and mortgage, this would leave me very thin at the end of the month. So, after taking time to think about it, uh, overhearing your praise for the Royal Enfield, I did a bunch of research and heard so many good things about them. I went to the dealer last week and picked up a beautiful 2023 Interceptor 650 in the Baker Express colour. I realised this bike is less than half the power of the mighty Z900, but on the real, on real world roads, I found it to be more than sufficient. This bike is extremely fun to ride around the back roads of Connecticut and New York, and I plan to take it on multi-day trips when the weather breaks. And the big plus of this bike it's 130 a month plus 25 pounds a month for insurance. You cannot beat that. I'll attach some photos. Nick, thank you. I'll try and remember to share some of these pics as well because that, I think it's my favourite colour scheme, the Baker, what do they call it? The Baker Express, white and red. It looks stunning in that colour. And this is it. You are saving, Nick. 120, 110... I mean, you're saving about 100, God, is that 150 a month insurance and monthly repayments for five years, 150 a month. That's a, a really massive saving. And the enjoyment that you get from the Interceptor, I'm sure will be just as good as that very, very impressive Kawasaki. And you have more money in your pocket. You're not crippled. With those overpayments, if, you, if you're stretching too much to make those overpayments. And of course, everyone's financial situation is different. But the point is, if you get to a point when you're looking at finances and you realise, God, I think I may be stretching a bit much and I may have to forego some other things if I take out this loan, then you're probably at the point where it's just too expensive. I recently saw a biker posting saying he's looking to cut his overheads because they've become too much. So looking to sell his bike and get something cheaper that is nowhere near as impressive the bike he's looking at getting. Not even close, but unburdening yourself from the finances if you, you've overstretched too much is, in his mind and in mine as well, completely worth it. The savings that you make financially, that the lack of financial stress and pressure is worth it for, yes, probably not quite as cool a bike, but still something that's cool. And that's why Royal Enfield is so great. You can get a cool bike for cool money. Thank you, Nick. Moving on, Freddie. <laughs> I know I forget names. So note down my name if you mention this. And this is from Les, I think. No, this is the last one, the last one of today. So this is from Les. Here we go, Les, the final one. I've been following your YouTube for a while um, and uh, enjoy the lifestyle shown. I've only recently come across your podcast, but I've listened through the back catalogue while working. You talk about the cost of having a bike. Well, I'm 63 now, and I have had bikes since I was 13. That's over 30 bikes of all sorts. And I believe that I am completely cost neutral. In fact, I would probably have money in hand if I had sold my current two bikes. Well, that's incredible. I will try to put the list uh, at the bottom. I love the hunt for a new bike, and to me, uh, bike almost more than the bike I'm riding. 
I'm lucky now that, uh, sorry, I love to hunt for the bike almost more than the bike I'm riding. I'm lucky that now I can have more than one bike at a time, so the hunt is almost continuous, but I'm not a collector. No matter how much I love them, and I do, they will always make way for a different one. I've used my bike for touring, off-road, commuting, track days, and just for a trip to the cafe, so pretty much everything over the years. The two bikes I kept the longest, the two bikes I kept the longest were a 1989 Kawasaki ZXR750H1, three years and a, and that was for three years, and a 1996 Triumph Speed Triple in orange, also for three years. I would have either back in a heartbeat, but the rose-tinted glasses may have kicked in. Most are gone within a year. The most memorable was the 1980s Yamaha RD350 power valve. It felt insane at the time, but I suspect it would feel really tame now. I think the solid arrival of power at 6,000 revs gave it more character than anything else, lifting the front wheel in first, second and third without any effort at all. I only crashed it once, going too fast around a bend in the damp. Luckily I wasn't hurt, I fixed it, sold it and then bought it back for a while. Happy days. I remember riding it on early performance bike. Oh, wow. I remember riding it on an early performance bikes magazine frenzy at Cadwell Park in the early 90s, just when track days were starting to be a thing. In the briefing, Mark Forsyth, the editor, said, we've been told there will be deaths. Prove them wrong. The bike I rode, uh, or the bike I liked, Oh, this is interesting. The bike I liked to ride least was a Harley. I know you're very keen on one at the moment, but this was a classic. It was a 1976 Shovelhead FXE, mildly customised. I loved to look at it and to listen to it, but I hated riding it. I swapped it for an Aprilia RSV Mille. Two big twins, but the difference was night and day. I have three wisdoms about buying and selling bikes. Okay, here we go. Have a listen to this uh, as a, f a good way to end from Les. I have three wisdoms about buying and selling bikes. Get ready for this. Buy when everybody else is selling, mostly in the late autumn. Look for something you can add a little value to, cosmetically and mechanically. Sell when everybody else is buying and while you still, and this is important, while you still love the bike. That's an interesting point. Oh, and I nearly always buy privately. You can tell more about the bike by looking at the person selling than if you're buying, uh, then you can, uh, sorry, you can tell more about the bike by looking at the person selling it than you can by checking it over. Just a final point. I did put around 10,000 miles on a Defender in Germany in the late 1970s, fighting in the Cold War. I've always had a soft spot for them, but wouldn't want one uh, that wasn't a bit rough around the edges. Take care. Listen soon. Les. Les, thank you for that. I, uh, I agree with everything. In fact, this is some, something good to learn for me because... I always sell bikes when I've slightly fallen out of love with them and it means I don't sell them that well and it also means I'm a desperate seller because I want to move on to something else so I in essence basically give them away. 
and buying privately. I am a fan of buying privately because private sales, you can read the passion and the enthusiasm from a private seller. If you buy from a dealer, it's usually just listing off the bike. 2008 Harley Davidson, 28,000 miles on the clock, next service due 32,000 miles, call for more info. But from a private seller, you can really judge if it's their pride and joy. You can read so much more into that bike. Les, that is a perfect way to end. Um, and I'm just having a look. You've listed all 30 of your bikes. And it's, it's an interesting mix because you're clearly a Japanese fan. Let me just read out a few of these. Your 30 bikes over, oh, how long was it? Wow, since, okay, 30 bikes, 63 now, so it's got to be, it's got to be pushing 45. You were 13 at the time, okay, 50 years. This is 50 years of riding, and these are some of the bikes. Have a listen just to wrap up this week's episode. Honda 90 sports model, Lambretta LI150, Honda C70, Triumph Triton 650 1968, Kawasaki KE100, Suzuki GS750, Suzuki GS750EX, Suzuki GS550, Honda VF750, Yamaha RD350, Suzuki RM250, Suzuki GSXR750, Slabside, Honda CBR900RRN, Kawasaki ZXR750, Kawasaki ZX6R, Yamaha FZR600, Honda CBR900RW, Triumph, that's the second Triumph, but only the second, oh, you've got a Lambretta there as well, only the third non-Japanese bike, Triumph Speed Triple, Honda CBR900RRY, Yamaha TT, Ah, 600, Honda VFR 750. We're back on to Triumph Daytona 955. And then there's the Harley Shovelhead 1200, Aprilia RSV, Triumph T120R from 1972, Triumph T140 from 1978, Honda CB750, Triumph Sprint 1050. I know that engine well, it was in the Speed Triple. I love that. Honda CB750 K5, wow. Honda CB900R, and then finally a Honda CB750F Cafe Racer. Oh, fantastic. Les, thank you for sharing all of that. Thank you so much all for messaging in. Please do get in touch. Send any pics you've got. Get in touch with all of the details I list below. Thank you all. Have a brilliant week, and I'll speak to you all in the next one.